Luke 9, 10 to 17. Here we go. Feeding of the 5,000. It is a great passage. So here we are. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. He took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging, because we are in a remote place here. He replied to them, You give them something to eat. They answered, We have only five loaves of bread and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd, about 5,000 men were there. But he said to the disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so and everyone sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. I'm just going to find the lectern. I'm not running away, don't worry. The lectern is hiding around behind the pillar. Great. Well, it's wonderful to be here with you this evening. I don't get to preach at this service very often, so it's a real treat to be here at the six. Um, At the beginning of the service, you were asked about your best meal ever. If it's okay, I'd like to tell you about mine. So a few, well, a lot of years ago, actually, I've been married nearly 20 years, but when Mike and I were, were first married, we went up on holiday to Scotland, and we were staying in a rather lovely country house hotel in the town of Callender. And they served seven-course dinners every night. Don't worry, we were only there for about two nights, otherwise it would be really expensive. But a seven-course dinner is just amazing. And not only that, but we were in this dining room, and it was a round table just for the two of us, but with the most massive flower vase in the middle of the table. So Mike and I were literally like peering around the vase, trying to talk to each other over dinner. It was quite something. But the food, all seven courses of it, it was just delicious, but we couldn't finish it. It felt so bad leaving some on the plates, but we were just full to bursting, and there was still food left over. (coughs) Sorry, I might cough a bit tonight. (coughs) My other example of an amazing meal was an all-you-can-eat buffet that I went to when I was a student. So does anyone here like all-you-can-eat buffets? Yeah, a few, quite a lot of hands going up. So has anyone ever managed to clear the all-you-can-eat buffet? I, I mean, I asked at the morning service. <laughs> no, um, not even Julian, I can see. No. <laughs> We didn't manage it either. There was food left over. We were full to bursting, and there was food left over at the all-you-can-eat buffet. Well, tonight's reading is not a country house hotel in calendar. It's not an all-you-can-eat buffet, but it must be one of the most famous meals in history, Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. And what that has in common with my two examples is that everyone who was there 
had the most amazing meal to eat and was fully satisfied, and yet there were still shed loads of food left over at the end, 12 basketfuls in our Bible reading. So just to step back a little bit, a little bit of context, this is in the middle of Jesus' public ministry. So he's been going around doing lots of preaching and lots of healings. He's even raised a dead girl to life. And immediately before the passage that Richard read, Jesus has commissioned the disciples and sent them out on mission. So they also have been going out in his name, preaching and also doing healings. And at the beginning of our reading, they come back. So they've been off a mission, now they're coming to report back to Jesus on everything that's happened. And Jesus, a great team leader, takes them away for a bit of time out to hear what they've been up to, reflect, regather, recharge the batteries. But the people have got other ideas. The crowds follow them, they press in around them, they don't want to leave Jesus alone. And they follow Jesus and his disciples to this quiet place of rest. Now, I don't know about you, but I would have seriously thrown a strop at this point. I mean, I need some time out. Does Jesus have no boundaries? What's going on here? But Jesus is so generous with his time and his hospitality. He continues to welcome the people, to preach to them, and heal those who are unwell. But then we hit a problem, because it's getting late. They're miles from anywhere, and there's no food or shelter for the crowd. And so the scene is set for this amazing miracle of abundance and generosity. Now, a lot of Bible commentators have spilled a lot of ink on trying to explain this miracle away and come up with a theory to explain what happened. So the theory they come up with goes a little bit like this. The disciples open their backpacks pulled out the five loaves and two fish, looked around, and everyone else started feeling so bad that they actually suddenly remembered, oh, yeah, we've got a packed lunch in our backpacks as well. They dug into their pockets, pulled it out, and suddenly there was enough food to go around. I don't think it went like that. It was, in fact, a genuinely supernatural miracle of multiplication. Jesus took those five loaves and two fish... He looked up to heaven, gave thanks to God, broke them into pieces, and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowds. They were giving out food and giving out food and giving out food and giving out food. Kept coming and coming and coming. And everyone ate and was satisfied with 12 basketfuls left over at the end. So this is an over and above abundance of provision. Because Jesus doesn't just give them enough food to have a mouthful, take the edge off the hunger. It's like, okay, yeah, I can last another few hours now. No, they all ate and were satisfied. Just like me and my friends at an all-you-can-eat buffet, where literally you've eaten so you're completely full, they couldn't eat anymore. Their hunger was satisfied. Their needs were fully met by Jesus. Now, I don't know if we've got anyone here who likes languages, but I've got a little bit of Greek for you tonight. Does anyone know any Greek? No? Well, I'm going to teach you one word of Greek. Oh, Richard knows a little bit of Greek. Okay. So the Greek word that is used for satisfaction here is the word kortadzo. Okay? You don't need to remember that for too long, because I'm just going to tell you it comes up one other time in Luke's Gospel. 
And that's in Luke 6, verse 21, when Jesus says this, Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. That's that word again, cortadzo. You will be satisfied. And although Jesus said that originally to his disciples, it still rings true for us today. You will be satisfied. But what does that actually look like in practice in our lives? Because I think it does include physical hunger, but I think it goes broader and deeper than that too. Paul writes in Philippians 4.19, he writes this, And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. All our needs met in Jesus. So does that mean that God's going to give us whatever we want? I don't know what's on your Christmas list or your wish list in your head, a nice new car, nice beach holiday. I was talking to someone about beach holidays at the start of this service. Whatever it might be, do we get it in God? Is that how it works? Well, sorry, but no. God promises to meet our needs, not necessarily our wants. And there is a difference. I'm going to look a little bit deeper into this. I'm going to talk about something called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Now, I don't know if anyone's come across that before. I think, I think Holly might have preached on this before, actually, here a few years ago. So some of you might have heard about it before. It's an idea that was developed by a psychologist called Abraham Maslow. And it, the idea is it classifies our human needs from the most basic fundamental level up to higher level needs. The idea being that people move up the pyramid from one level to the next once the more fundamental needs are satisfied. So if we can have the picture of the pyramid up on the screen, if we start at the bottom level of the pyramid, our most basic needs are physiological. That means it relates to our bodies. So we need things like food, water, and sleep at the most fundamental level of survival. Does Jesus promise to satisfy these needs? Well, yes, he does. In John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. That's the food. In John 4, 13, he's talking to a Samaritan woman at the well, and he says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. That's the living water of Jesus. And sleep? Psalm 127, verse 2, the Lord grants sleep to those he loves. I have to say, as I've got older, I've struggled more with that one. I bet so probably some of the younger ones here have hours and hours of sleep each night. Maybe for some of us older ones, it's a bit harder. But knowing that God promises sleep at least gives me something specific to pray for in those hours when I'm awake in the middle of the night. So God promises to meet our needs including those most basic needs for water, food, and sleep. If we move up a level, our next fundamental need is safety. So things like security, protection from harm, and our physical health. I love Psalm 46. It meant so much to a lot of people, I think, particularly during the COVID pandemic. And it describes God as our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble even when there's things like natural disasters and conflicts raging around the world, the psalmist holds firm to the refrain, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. 
physical health comes in there as well. Right the way back in Exodus, we read of God as the Lord who heals you. And we continue to see that played out in the healing ministry of Jesus in the Gospels, the healing ministry of the Apostles continue in the book of Acts, and yes, right up to our present day also, as we're encouraged to pray for healing for one another. So those needs are met in God's wonderful provision also. Let's go up to number three in the middle, love and belonging, the need for friendship and intimacy. So Psalm 42 paints a beautiful picture of intimacy of relationship with God. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. And in John 15, we get the immense privilege of being called friends by Jesus. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything I learned from my father, I've made known to you. And because we are his friends, we can come to him with whatever is on our heart and speak to him as a friend, knowing that he loves us and wants what's best for us. Moving up to level four, we reach our need for esteem, for status, strength, respect, and freedom. Now, strength crops up in one of my favorite verses in Isaiah 40. God gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. So that's strength. When we think of our need for esteem and status, I can only come back to the multiple times in the New Testament that we are described as children of God. What other identity could possibly come close to meaning as much as that, that the God of the universe invites us to call him Father? And thinking about freedom, well, Galatians 5 verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So those needs for esteem, for strength and freedom are all met as we embrace our identity as children of God. Let's move right to the top of the pyramid. Level five, now this is a long word, self-actualization. What it means is becoming all you can be, or in other words, fulfilling your potential. God longs for us to grow in our faith, to become more like him day by day by putting down deep roots into his word and showing our love for him and for others in practical ways. And this is what Paul prays for the church in Colossae. There's a wonderful prayer in Colossians 1. It's a few verses long. I'm going to read it, but it's going to come up on the screen so you can follow it. And Paul prays this. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father, 
who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Isn't that just a wonderful prayer to pray for ourselves and for one another as we follow Jesus together? So we've considered those different levels of need in Maslow's Pyramid, and I hope we're beginning to see for ourselves the truth of the verse from Philippians 4.19, with which I started this section. My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. And yet, I wonder whether for some of us, this is feeling all a little bit too neatly wrapped up or a little bit too neat and tidy because we live in a world where those loose ends are not all tied up, don't we? Where sadly we do see people even those who know and love Jesus, for whom these needs are not all met. We see some who have no food or water. We see others who have no place to call home. We turn on the news and read of tens of thousands being killed and injured by earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. Closer to home, we may perhaps know those who struggle to find a sense of belonging or connection in a friendship group at work or at school. We might know some whose esteem is knocked to rock bottom through abusive or coercive behaviour. We might know some who even feel that life is pointless and there's nothing to look forward to or aim for. Perhaps for some of us, this is not so much about people we know, as a reality that resonates deep within our own lived experience. And if that's true for you, then do have a chat with myself or Richard or someone on the prayer ministry team at the end of the service, because we'd love to listen to you and pray with you and for you. But how do we hold together God's promise of satisfaction guaranteed of our needs being met how do we hold that alongside the difficult and sometimes brutal realities of today's world? Let's look at one more verse together. This is 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. So the Apostle Paul begins with words that are really closely linked to what I've been talking about so far today. He says this, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Right, pause. Yes, Paul, we might respond, but that isn't always our lived reality. But Paul continues, God anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Now, I don't know if anyone's good at grammar, but did you notice there are two different tenses in that last verse? There's a past tense and there's a future tense. God has anointed us. God has set his seal on us. He has put his spirit in our hearts. That has all happened if we've given our lives to him. But the spirit is given us as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. That's the future tense. So there's a sense in which we live now in the reality of God's promises. Jesus has come, he has lived and died and risen again. We are children of God now, that's a reality. But we do not yet 
live in the fullness of all that God has promised. Imagine you're buying a car or something else that's really expensive, maybe a new phone. You might be asked to pay a deposit. So you pay a little bit of money, you get whatever it is that you've asked for, and the deposit is a guarantee that you're going to pay the rest of the money eventually, just not quite yet. And it's like that because God gives us the Holy Spirit as a deposit to guarantee that when he returns, all of his promises will be brought to fulfillment. So at the moment, we live in the now, but not yet. Coming back to Philippians 4.19, my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. God's satisfaction of our needs will happen, but we don't yet live in the fullness of that promise until Jesus returns. And for some of us, that might mean we're in a painful period of waiting for something to be fulfilled, of living through difficulties and challenges right now. But one day, we have the deposit. One day, those needs will be met when he returns. As I finish, I'd like to suggest three ways in which we might respond. First, we can pray for those whose needs are not fully satisfied right now. When we pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying for those present and future realities to draw just a little bit closer for God's promises to increasingly be brought to reality in this present world. So we can pray. Second, we can be part of the answer to our own prayers as we seek to show our love for God in practical acts of service to meet the needs of others. It could be a donation to our local food bank. It could be a donation to the Easter appeal. It could be spending time with someone who's lonely Or it could be inviting someone to discover the freedom of becoming a child of God for themselves. What are the five loaves and two fish that we could bring for God to multiply and do something amazing with? And finally, we can commit to going deeper with God in our own journey, to entering more fully for ourselves into the promise of finding all our needs met in him. That isn't a quick fix, but it's a lifelong journey. And it's summed up in that prayer for the Colossians that I read earlier, and which I'm going to read again now as I close. So let me finish with this as a prayer for us all. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people, in the kingdom of light. Amen.